everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about the basics of my basic basics. Steak frites, gin and tonic, white tennis shoes, and Frank Sinatra. Steak frites. I love red meat. I love carpaccio with truffle oil and shaved Parmigiano cheese. Better yet, shaved Age Romano. Love that minerality. I love a New York strip. I love steak frites. I mistakenly believed them to be of French origin until I met Belgians. I was then corrected. I love frites. I love mussels and fries. I thought it was kind of weird that French fries were invented in Belgium. Still love them. I like strip more than entrecote or ribeye, but still, whoa, hey, whoa, hey. I love peppercorn sauce. I love bernays. I love mushrooms browned to perfection with emincee of shallots, a dash of red wine vinegar to deglaze, a little bit cognac, reduced veal stock or demi-glace to moisten, perhaps a drop or two of cream for consistency. None of that is good for me. I love it. Hell. I love pate. But back to red meat. Steak frites. One of my bellwethers for any restaurant I wish to return to. If the specials don't knock me out, I will go for the steak. The good one. Hell, I'll even go for the hanger steak bordelais avec fries. From Wikipedia. Steak frites, meaning steak and fries in French, is a very common and popular dish served in brasseries throughout Europe consisting of steak paired with french fries. It is considered by some to be the national dish of Belgium, which claims to be the place of its invention. Historically, the rump steak was commonly used for this dish. More typically at the present time, the steak is an entrecote, also called ribeye, or scotch filet in Australia, rare, in a pan reduction sauce, sometimes with hollandaise or béarnais sauce, served with deep-fried potatoes otherwise known as French fries. Francophilia led to its generalization to the Portuguese-speaking world, especially in Brazil, where the sauce is usually just onion rings cooked and fried in the steak's own juice and frying oil, being the most popular dish to go aside rice and beans. The dish is also very popular in the Spanish-speaking world. Steak frites is the subject of a semiotic analysis by the French cultural theorist Roland Barthes in his 1957 work, Mythologies. How about that? Oh, I absolutely love it. Also from Wikipedia, red meat. In gastronomy, red meat is commonly red when raw and dark color after it is cooked, in contrast to white meat, which is pale in color before and after cooking. In culinary terms, only flesh from mammals or fowl, not fish, is classified as red or white. In nutritional science, red meat is defined as any meat that has more of the protein myoglobin than white meat. White meat is defined as non-dark meat from fish or chicken, excluding the leg or thigh. The health effects of red meat are unclear as of 2019. Some meat, such as pork, is classified as white meat under the common gastronomic definition 
but as red meat under the nutritional definition. Okay. Under the culinary definition, the meat from adult or gamey mammals, for example, beef, horse meat, mutton, venison, boar, hare, is red meat, while that from young mammals, rabbit, veal, lamb, is white. Poultry is white, as well as duck and goose. Most cuts of pork are red. Others are white. Game is sometimes put into a separate category altogether. According to the United States Department of Agriculture, all meats obtained from mammals, regardless of cut or age, are red meats because they contain more myoglobin than fish or white meat, but not necessarily dark meat from chicken. Across many cultures, it is traditional to eat meat at gatherings or celebrations. Consumption in the United States increased in 2018. How could that ever happen? Red meat contains large amounts of iron, creatine, minerals such as zinc and phosphorus, and B vitamins. Red meat is a source of lipoic acid. Red meat contains small amounts of vitamin D. The liver contains much higher quantities than other parts of the animal. In 2011, the USDA launched MyPlate, which did not distinguish between kinds of meat, but did recommend eating at least 8 ounces of fish each week. In 2011, the Harvard School of Public Health launched the Healthy Eating Plate in part because of the perceived inadequacies of the USDA's recommendations. The Healthy Eating Plate encourages consumers to avoid processed meat and limit red meat consumption to twice a week because of links to heart disease, diabetes, and colon cancer. To replace these meats, it recommends consuming fish, poultry, beans, or nuts. The health effects of red meat are unclear. Understanding the health impact of red meat is difficult because it is not a uniform product, with effects varying based on fat content, processing, and preparation. One analysis showed that processed red meat is linked to slightly higher mortality, mainly due to cardiovascular disease and cancer. Processed meat is pretty nasty, too. Most processed meat contains at least some red meat. To enhance flavor or improve preservation, meat is treated by salting, curing, fermentation, smoking, or other processes to create processed meat. Nitrates and nitrites found in processed meat, bacon, ham, salami, pepperoni, hot dogs, and some sausages, can be converted by the human body into nitrosamines that can be carcinogenic, causing mutation in the colorectal cell line, thereby causing tumorigenesis and eventually leading to cancer. A 2016 review found that for each additional 50 grams per day of processed meat consumed, the risk increased 4% for total prostate cancer, 8% for cancer mortality, 9% for breast cancer, 18% for colorectal cancer, 19% for pancreatic cancer, 13% for stroke, 24% for cardiovascular mortality, and 32% for diabetes. Oh, I am so enthused. In 2015, the International Agency for Cancer concluded that red meat is probably carcinogenic to humans. Studies that differentiate between processed and fresh red meat have failed to find a link between unprocessed red meat consumption and heart disease. A meta-analysis published in 2010 involving around 1 million people who ate meat found that only processed meat had an adverse risk in relation to coronary heart disease. 
the review suggested that the differences in salt and preservatives rather than fats might explain the higher risk of heart disease and diabetes seen with processed meats, but not with unprocessed red meats. Several studies have found a correlation between unprocessed red meat and the occurrence of CHD and certain types of stroke and have control for various confounding risk factors. A study of 84,000 women over a period of 26 years finds that those with the highest intake of unprocessed red meat have a 13% increased risk of CHD. Unprocessed red meat intake is tentatively associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes, but the link is weaker and less certain than the link between processed red meat and diabetes. Other findings have suggested that the association may be due to saturated fat, trans fat, and dietary cholesterol rather than red meat per se. Ugh. I still love red meat, and there was tons of information about this. A 2017 systematic review and meta-analysis of clinical research on stroke outcomes associated with meat consumption showed that total meat consumption, red meat consumption, and processed red meat consumption increased the risk of stroke by 18%, 11%, and 17% respectively, while consuming white meat reduced the risk of stroke by 13%. Factors associated with increased stroke risk from consuming red meat include saturated fats that increase levels of blood cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, triglycerides, and heme iron, which may precipitate atherogenesis and cerebral arteries leading to stroke. A 2017 review found that consuming one half serving of red meat daily was not associated with cardiovascular disease risk factors such as total cholesterol, LDL, and hypertension. One study estimated that substitutions of one serving of nuts, low-fat dairy, and whole grains per day for one serving of red meat per day were associated with a 16 to 35% lower risk of type 2 diabetes. Wow. Red meat consumption has been associated with higher fasting, glucose, and insulin concentrations, which are risk factors for type 2 diabetes, while a diet of abstinence of red meat consuming whole grains, vegetables, fruits, and dairy was associated with an 81% reduced risk of diabetes. <sighs> Cooking any meat at high temperatures or smoking meat produces carcinogenic polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon compounds. The study goes on to say, marinating fresh lean red meat and thoroughly cooking it at a low temperature will reduce the production of carcinogenic compounds and thereby lower the risk of colorectal cancer. I still love steak. I love a good steak. My next basic is gin and tonic. Gin and tonic, Eddie. Gin and tonic, sweetie. Gin and tonic from Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. A gin and tonic is a highball cocktail made with gin and tonic water poured over a large amount of ice. The ratio of gin to tonic varies according to taste, strength of the gin, other drink mixers being added, etc., with most recipes calling for between a 1 and 1 and 1 to 3 ratio. It is usually garnished with a slice or a wedge of lime. To preserve effervescence, the tonic can be poured down a bar spoon. The ice cools the gin, 
dulling the effect of the alcohol in the mouth and making the drink more pleasant to taste. I love gin and tonic. I know it is not that popular with some people, but the people who love it really love it, just like buttermilk or licorice or the Grateful Dead. If you love gin and tonic, you become a canoise. In some countries, gin and tonic is also marketed pre-mixed in single-serving cans. Where is this? In the United States, most bars use soda out of the gun that in no way, shape, or form resembles quinine water, according to bartender Dale DeGruff. I do agree. I have been searching for a really good tonic. So far, I found Fever Tree and Q-Tonic have been the best so far for me, but also Polar, which is cheap. So I love it. I hope everyone else doesn't go out and buy all of the Polar tonic water and leave me with none. So it is commonly referred to as a G&T in the UK, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland. In some parts of the world, it is called a gin tonic. Germany, Italy, Japan. Phonetically, gin tonico. The cocktail was introduced by the army of the British East India Company in India. In India and other tropical regions, malaria was a persistent problem. In the 1700s, Scottish doctor George Cleghorn studied how quinine, a traditional cure for malaria, could be used to prevent the disease. The quinine was drunk in tonic water, however the bitter taste was unpleasant. British officers in India in the early 19th century took to adding a mixture of water, sugar, lime, and gin to the quinine in order to make the drink more palatable. Thus, the gin and tonic was born. Soldiers in India were already given a gin ration, and the sweet concoction made sense. Since it is no longer used as an anti-malarial, tonic water today contains much less quinine, is usually sweetened, and consequently tastes much less bitter. Gin and tonic is a popular cocktail during the summer. I do prefer my gin with cucumber and lime. In Spain, a variation on the drink gin and tonic has become popular. This differs from the traditional gin and tonic as it is served in a balloon glass or coupe glass with plenty of ice and garnish tailored to the flavors of the gin. The drink could be fruit-based, but the use of herbs and vegetables reflecting the gin's botanicals is increasingly popular. The balloon glass is used because the aromas of the drink can gather at its opening for the drinker to more easily appreciate. Well, I respect and admire that. The popularity of this variation of the gin and tonic has led to the establishment of gin tonic bars, in which customers can choose their preferred gin, tonic, and garnish from a menu. And huzzah to them! In popular culture, the transgalactic nature of the gin and tonic is imagined in Douglas Adams' novel The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, which describes how 85% of all known worlds in the galaxy, be they primitive or highly advanced, have invented a drink called gin and tonics, or gin and tonics, or gin and onics, or any one of a thousand or more variations of the same phonetic theme. The drinks themselves are not the same and vary between the Sivolvian Chinato Minigs, which is ordinary water served at slightly above room temperature, and the Gagrakakan Gin Antonics, which kills cows at a hundred paces. And in fact, the one common factor between all of them, beyond the fact that all the names sound the same, is that they were all invented and named before the world's concern made contact with any other worlds. 
James Bond specifies a recipe for a gin and tonic in Kingston, Jamaica, in the book Dr. No. Unusually, it involves the juice of a whole lime. The first character described in the Billy Joel song, Piano Man, is said to be making love to his tonic and gin. In the movie The Year of Living Dangerously, Colonel Henderson, when he first meets Guy Hamilton, complains when his gin and tonic is served with ice, explaining that only Americans drink it like that. On the sitcom How I Met Your Mother, character Barney Stinson, played by Neil Patrick Harris, is often heard ordering a gin and tonic. On one occasion, when he serves as a bartender, the audience learns that he does not know what the drink consists of. Gin and tonic is one of John Constantine's drinks of choice in the Hellblazer comics. Gin and tonic is also the drink of choice for Hero, Cat, in Jeanine Frost's Night Huntress series. Founded in 2010, International Gin and Tonic Day is celebrated worldwide on the 19th of October, and I will celebrate that day. Melanie Scarfano's character, Mrs. McMurray, prefers to drink gin and tonics in the Canadian TV comedy Letter Kenny. My dad always referred to bars as gin mills. Gin is my preferred alcohol, and I always think of uh, Casablanca. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. And I also think of the movie Oliver. One of the boys in Fagin's gang said, These sausages are moldy! And Fagin says, Shut up and drink your gin! I would obey Fagin. Gin is a distilled alcoholic drink that derives its predominant flavor from juniper berries. Gin was invented in the southern Italian city of Salerno in the 12th century, where the first traces of wine distillates with infused herbs are referenced in the compendium Salernitanum of the Scola Medica Salernitana. The school was an important source of medical knowledge for Western Europe at the time, and gin was often called aqua vita, water of life. Gin began its life as a medicinal liquor, and monks in Italy were swiftly followed by other monks and alchemists across Europe, particularly southern France, Flanders, and the Netherlands where gin is often incorrectly believed to have been invented to provide aqua vita from distilled grapes and grains. It then became an object of commerce in the spirits industry. Gin emerged in England after the introduction of the Genever, a Dutch and Belgian liquor, which originally had been a medicine. Although this development had been taking place since the early 17th century, gin became widespread after the William of Orange-led 1688 Glorious Revolution and subsequent import restrictions on French brandy. How about that? The physician Francisca Silvius has been falsely credited with the invention of gin in the mid-17th century, although the existence of Genever is confirmed in Philip Massinger's play The Duke of Milan from 1623, when Silvius would have been about nine years old. It is further claimed that English soldiers who provided support in Antwerp against the Spanish in 1585 during the Eighty Years' War were already drinking Genever for its calming effects before battle, from which the term Dutch courage is believed to have originated. By the mid-17th century, numerous small Dutch and Flemish distillers had popularized the redistillation of malted barley spirit or malt wine with juniper, anise, caraway, coriander, etc., which were sold in pharmacies and used to treat such medical problems as kidney ailments, lumbago, stomach ailments, gallstones, and gout. 
Gin emerged in England in varying forms by the early 17th century and at the time of the Restoration enjoyed a brief resurgence. Gin became vastly more popular as an alternative to brandy after the Glorious Revolution. Particularly in crude, inferior forms, it was more likely to be flavored with turpentine. Historian Angela McShane has described it as a Protestant drink as its rise was brought about by a Protestant king fueling his armies fighting the Catholic, Irish, and French. I did not know that at all. Gin drinking in England rose significantly after the government allowed unlicensed gin production and at the same time imposed a heavy duty on all imported spirits such as French brandy. This created a larger market for poor quality barley that was unfit for brewing beer, and in 1695 to 1735, thousands of gin shops sprang up throughout England, a period known as the gin craze. Because of the low price of gin, when compared with other drinks available at the same time and in the same geographic location, gin began to be consumed regularly by the poor. Of the 15,000 drinking establishments in London, not including coffee shops and drinking chocolate shops, over half were gin shops. Beer maintained a healthy reputation as it was often safer to drink the brewed ale than unclean plain water. Gin, though, was blamed for various social problems, and it may have been a factor in the higher death rates which stabilized London's previously growing population. Wow. The reputation of the two drinks was illustrated by William Hogarth in his engravings, Beer Street and Gin Lane. The negative reputation of gin survives today in the English language in terms like gin mills and the American phrase gin joints to describe disreputable bars or gin soak to refer to drunks. The epithet Mother's Ruin is a common British name for gin, the origin of which is the subject of ongoing debate. The Gin Act of 1736 imposed high taxes on retailers and led to riots in the streets. The prohibitive duty was gradually reduced and finally abolished in 1742. The Gin Act 1751 was more successful, however. It forced distillers to sell only to licensed retailers and brought gin shops under the jurisdiction of local magistrates. Gin in the 18th century was produced in pot stills and was somewhat sweeter than the London gin known today. How about that? In London in the early 18th century, much gin was distilled legally in residential houses. There were estimated to be 1,500 residential stills in 1726 and was often flavored with turpentine to generate resinous woody notes in addition to the juniper. As late as 1913, Webster's Dictionary states that without further comment, common gin is usually flavored with turpentine. Another common variation was to distill in the presence of sulfuric acid. <laughs> Turpentine and sulfuric acid. Although the acid itself does not distill, it imparts the additional aroma of diethyl ether to the resulting gin. Sulfuric acid subtracts one water molecule from two ethanol molecules to create diethyl ether, which also forms an azeotrope with ethanol and therefore distills with it. The result is a sweeter spirit and one that may have possessed additional analgesic or even intoxicating effects. Huh. 
The 18th century gave rise to a style of gin referred to as Old Tom Gin, which is a softer, sweeter style of gin, often containing sugar. Old Tom Gin faded in popularity by the early 20th century, but it is used widely now in cocktails. Secretly produced bathtub gin was available in the speakeasies and blind pigs of Prohibition-era America as a result of the relative simple production. Slow gin is traditionally described as liquor made by infusing slow, the fruit of the blackthorn, in gin, although modern versions are almost always compounded from neutral spirits and flavorings. Since 2013, gin has been in a period of ascendancy worldwide, with many new brands and producers entering the category, leading to a period of strong growth, innovation, and change. More recently, gin-based liqueurs have been popularized, reaching a market outside that of traditional gin drinkers, including fruit-flavored and usually colored pink gin, rhubarb gin, spice gin, violet gin, blood orange gin, and slow gin. Surging popularity and unchecked competition has led to consumers' conflation of gin with gin liqueurs, and many products are straddling, pushing, or breaking the boundaries of established definitions in a period of genesis for the industry. Okay, so that's me for gin. Now, to my next one. The White Tennis Shoe. From greats.com. Behind the greats. The history of the white tennis shoe. From June of 2017. Leather jackets, blue jeans. Cool, collected confidence. In the realm of style, there are but few true icons. As trend cycles twist and turn, even wardrobe staples such as traditional aviator sunglasses may find themselves suddenly out of favor. However, while fickle fashions ebb and flow, one single piece of footwear has outlasted all others. The white low-top tennis shoe. I love them. I've been wearing them since as long as I can remember. I've always thought they were cool. I always thought they were sexy. Every, every time I saw another guy who I thought was attractive wearing them, I thought he was cooler and sexier just because they looked great on him. For spring, summer, and fall, the single shoe represents a modern-day triple crown of footwear. It is lightweight, refined, and versatile to a T. Yet, with a legacy spanning centuries, the first modern sneaker also represents living history and ageless style. In 1870s England, a revolutionary canvas rubber shoe that looked like a boat's hull was starting to make waves. These plimsolls, a nickname gave from the rubber toe cap's resemblance to the plimsoll line in a boat, as they were called, represented a crude solution to a pervasive problem. While traditional leather-soled sports derbies did fine in ideal conditions, the vulcanized rubber soles introduced by Charles Goodyear beginning in the 1830s were both cheaper and more adaptable for nearly every manner of sports. Gluing a cheap canvas upper to a vulcanized rubber sole then represented a simple, cost-effective, athletic shoe for all ages. What early plimsolls lacked in refinement they redoubled in pure economic sense. Well, what do you know about that? The first true improvements to the plimsoll came with the addition of cross-hatching to the shoe's rubber sole, providing extra grip for no additional cost. As a result, these early canvas and carved rubber plimsolls began to gain favor with sportsmen for their comfort and reliability during high-movement sports like tennis. 
By the early 1890s, examples of British sporting sneakers, so named because their rubber bottoms made them quieter than lug boot outsoles, had gained enough popularity in the United States to encourage the very first American sneaker production. However, it wouldn't be until 1917, exactly 103 years ago, that the first mass-market canvas sneakers would hit stores. While the interwar years brought about few major advances in shoes, a newfound focus on international cooperation provided a wholly new arena for these early canvas sneakers to be seen. The Olympics! Canvas tennis shoes were the yoga pants of their days. Standard-issue performance sporting turned into cultural membership. Then, the cows got involved. With the tennis boom in full swing, athletic shoemakers finally had the public demand necessary to seek out innovation. In a highly agile sport like tennis, canvas shoes provided little responsiveness to players cutting around the court. The cloth upper was just too flimsy for that lateral force. This is when things got sexy. In the late 1960s, the first ever leather tennis shoe, the Robert Hallett, was introduced just like that. The sports world changed overnight. The Hallett kept all the same aesthetics of the classic plimsolls, but rendered the white low-top design in supple yet durable leather, keeping the athlete's foot locked in and providing better backstop for any quick movements on court. It was a simple materials change that would prove a groundbreaking innovation. Another bonus of the new leather upper? It looked phenomenal. By the late 1970s, white leather low tops were a cultural style staple for both men and women alike. Later advances in materials technology may have benched the white leather low top from its sporting duty, but the combination of a handsome, sturdy upper with streamlined silhouettes shaped by the decades on the court remains the gold medal of style. I agree 100%. Sneakers have been an important part of hip-hop culture since the 70s hip-hop artists signed multi-million dollar deals with major brands such as Nike, Adidas, or Puma to promote their shoes. Sneaker collectors, often called sneakerheads, regard sneakers as fashionable items. Sneaker companies encourage this trend by producing rare sneakers in limited numbers, often at very high retail prices. Artistically modified sneakers can sell for upwards of $1,000 at exclusive establishments like Saks Fifth Avenue. So for me, it's amazing that sneakers have been made around the world, but a large percentage of sneakers have been made in China. However, since 2010, Adidas has cut the share of the footwear it makes in China in half. The country that has absorbed most of that business is Vietnam. A similar situation is playing out at Nike. A decade ago, China was its main footwear producer. Today, Vietnam owns that title. Well, well, well. Now we get to the fourth basic of my basic basics. The one and only Francis Albert Sinatra, Old Blue Eyes, St. Francis of Hoboken, Frank Sinatra. There was never, ever, ever anybody like Frank Sinatra. He had people before him. Russ Colombo was before Sinatra. He died at a young age. Bing Crosby greatly influenced Sinatra. There were peers and contemporaries, you know, Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Tony Bennett, Dick Hames, Ella Fitzgerald, Judy Garland, Stephen Eady, all the great singers of the American Songbook. They were all fantastic. 
But Frank had that phrasing and that undeniably appealing quality in his voice. His voice. The chairman of the board. He was an American singer, actor, and producer who was one of the most popular and influential music artists of the 20th century. He is one of the best-selling music artists of all time, having sold more than 150 million records. Every New Year's Eve, the first song played in Times Square is Guy Lombardo and the Royal Canadians' cover of Auld Lang Syne. The second song is Frank Sinatra's cover of New York, New York. He was born to Italian immigrants in Hoboken. He started his musical career in the swing era with bandleaders Harry James and Tommy Dorsey. He was a solo artist after he signed with Columbia Records in 1943. He became the idol of the Bobby Soxers. He released his debut album, The Voice of Frank Sinatra, in 1946. But by the early 1950s, his professional career had stalled and he had turned to Las Vegas, where he became one of his best-known residency performers as part of the Rat Pack, among many other things. He was known to carry a grudge. He was known to help people out quietly. He was also known for his incredible, titanic ability to consume and enjoy Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels was never as popular before Frank Sinatra started drinking Jack Daniels in public than after he started drinking Jack Daniels in public. Las Vegas was the place that people went to and they wanted to drink what Frank drank. So every bar had Jack Daniels because if Frank Sinatra went there, he was going to do a shot of Jack and people were going to copy him. And they did. Jack Daniels has become exponentially more popular because of Frank Sinatra which is one of those things that I think is phenomenal. My favorite Frank Sinatra record of all time is Songs for Swingin' Lovers. From beginning to end, it is absolutely perfect. Nelson Riddle is fantastic. Frank Sinatra's voice was never, ever better. The song choices were never, ever better. The arrangements were never, ever better. It was just fantastic. He had a hugely successful career as a film actor. He was in... From Here to Eternity, he was in The Man with the Golden Arm, he was in The Manchurian Candidate, On the Town with Gene Kelly, Guys and Dolls, High Society with Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly, and Pal Joey. He never learned how to read music. He worked very hard from a young age to learn how to improve all his abilities, but he did not know how to read music. And he was an absolute perfectionist. He was married to his first wife, Nancy, then Ava Gardner, then Mia Farrow, then Barbara Marks. Frank had several violent confrontations, usually with journalists he had felt who had crossed him, or work bosses with whom he had disagreements. He would fly to Las Vegas from Los Angeles in Jimmy Van Neusen's single-engine plane. By 1959, Sinatra was not simply the leader of the Rat Pack, but had assumed the position of Il Padron in Hollywood. He formed his own label. He worked with people like Nelson Riddle, Neil Hefty, Don Costa, Quincy Jones, Sammy Kahn, Jimmy Van Neusen, and Jules Stein. His first album on his new label was Ring-a-Ding-Ding. His phenomenal success in 1965, coinciding with his 50th birthday, 
prompted Billboard to proclaim that he may have reached the peak of his eminence. I would say that's probably true. Frank recorded That's Life in 1966. My Way, one of his best-known songs, was not an instant success, and he told songwriter Irvin Drake in the 70s that he detested singing the song because he believed audiences would think it was a self-aggrandizing tribute, professing that he hated boastfulness in others. He had a famous lawsuit against the author Kitty Kelly, who wrote an unauthorized biography of him, which he eventually dropped. In 1984, he worked with Quincy Jones for the first time in nearly two decades, and L.A. is my lady. Two years later, in 1986, Sinatra reunited with Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. and went on the Rat Pack reunion tour, during which they played a number of large arenas. When Martin dropped out of the tour early on, a rift developed between them, and the two never spoke again. Frank died with his wife at his side at Cedar sinai Medical Center after a heart attack. He had been ill for the last few years of his life and was frequently hospitalized for heart and breathing problems, high blood pressure, pneumonia, and bladder cancer. He was further diagnosed as having dementia. The night after Sinatra's death, the lights on the Empire State Building in New York City were turned blue, the lights at the Las Vegas Strip were dimmed in his honor, and the casino stopped spinning for one minute. How about that? Sinatra's funeral was held at the Roman Catholic Church of the Good Shepherd in Beverly Hills, California, with 400 mourners in attendance and thousands of fans outside. Gregory Peck, Tony Bennett, Frank Jr. addressed the mourners, who included many notable people from film and entertainment. Sinatra was buried in a blue business suit with mementos from family members. Cherry-flavored Lifesavers, Tootsie Rolls, a bottle of Jack Daniels, a pack of Camel cigarettes, a Zippo lighter, stuffed toys, a dog biscuit, and a roll of dimes that he always carried next to his parents in Section B-8 of Desert Memorial Park in Cathedral City, California. He had been called the greatest singer of the 20th century. His popularity was later matched by Elvis Presley, the Beatles, and Michael Jackson. Still, Sinatra was considered the greatest male pop singer in the history of America. And Frank was one of the basics of popular music and what a pop star was all about. So a little bit about the history of pop music. From Wikipedia, popular music is music with wide appeal that is typically distributed to large audiences through the music industry. These forms and styles can be enjoyed and performed by people with little or no musical training. It stands in contrast to both art music and traditional or folk music. The original application of the term is to music of the 1880s, the Tin Pan Alley period of the United States. Although some popular music is sometimes known as pop music, the two terms are not interchangeable. Popular music is a generic term for a wide variety of genres of music that appeal to the tastes in large segments of the population, whereas pop music usually refers to a specific musical genre within popular music. Popular music songs and pieces typically have easily singable melodies. The song structure of popular music commonly involves repetition of sections with the verse and chorus or refrain often repeating throughout the song and the bridge providing a contrasting and transitional section within a piece. Scholars have classified popular music based on various factors, including whether a song or a piece becomes known to listeners mainly from hearing the music, its appeal to diverse listeners, its treatment as a marketplace commodity in a capitalist context, and other factors. 
David Reisman states that the youth audience of popular music fit into either a majority group or a subculture. The majority group listens to the commercially produced styles, while the subcultures find a minority style to transmit their own values. This allows youth to choose what music they identify with, which gives them power as consumers to control the market of popular music. And there you go. So, steak frites, gin and tonic, white tennis shoes, and Frank Sinatra. Those are the basics of my basic basics. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out.